Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to this week's message. I hope that it encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. Also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with and have spiritual conversations with. And if you don't, we would really love to invite you to be a part of our community here at Restore. You can get all the information that you need on our website at restoreaustin.org. Thank you for listening. You know, I, I don't really like to admit it, um, but I'm, I'm kind of vain. And if you know me or, or you're my wife, you kind of laugh and smirk at that because you know that it's true. Um, but, but, I, but I'm kind of vain. When, when, I, when I read something, when I hear something, when I see something, more often than not, I'm immediately filtering it through, what does this mean for me? How does this apply to me? How can I make this about me? I, I don't necessarily think that I'm alone. I think I'm probably looking at a lot of vain people as well. But I want to tell you a quick story about how my vanity kind of popped up this week. So I was listening to um, a, a sermon on a podcast uh, by a guy out of New York City named Tim Keller. And um, I, I do this a lot as I, as I prep or I read. I listen to other people speak on, on things that I'm speaking about and you know, hear ideas and things like that. So I'm listening to this Tim Keller sermon out, out of New York City. And at the very beginning of the sermon, it has the little intro bumper part where somebody's reading the scripture that he's going to teach on, and then it kind of cuts to where he actually walks up on the stage. And while he walks up on the stage, you just hear this like raucous applause, right? I mean, like he, he walks up and everybody's just clapping and clapping, and you hear Tim say like, thank you, so, thank you so much, please, no, it's okay, thank you so much. And I thought, Nobody ever claps for me when I walk, like never, that is not, y'all have never clapped for me, not one time. That's what I wanted to happen, right there, thank you. So I'm thinking about that, like, like nobody ever claps for me, this, this isn't fair. Then, then a few seconds later, the applause dies down, and I hear Tim say, it's so good to be back with you, as you all know, this is my first time back at church since I was diagnosed with cancer. And I thought, how vain am I, right? Like he's getting applauded because he's a cancer survivor who just came back to his church for the first time. But all I'm thinking about is like, why don't anybody ever clap for me? I don't, nobody ever claps for me. I, if I had been in a movie, right, at that point, I was sitting at this table in a restaurant with my headphones in. If I had been in a movie, the, the camera would have panned to me. It would have focused in really on my shame-filled face. You know, I would have dropped it down, and then Carly Simon's You're So Vain would have just started playing in the background around me. But I'm not unique. Because I think that if we are honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we can all be a little bit vain. We have this incredible ability to make everything about us. We do this in our work. We do this in our relationships. And we even do it in our worship. We're in the middle of a three-week series on worship called Adoration. Last week, we looked back to worship in the past. And we saw this, this beautiful picture of a God who is really the only one worthy of our worship. And next week, we're concluding this series, just a three-week series. Next week, we're concluding it by looking to the future of worship. What does worship really mean for the people around us as we, as we move forward in our lives? But this week, we're looking at worship in the present. 
Worship right now. What does it actually look like to worship Jesus today, here and now? That's what we're going to be focusing on. And I'm absolutely convinced that the greatest hindrance to us truly worshiping Jesus is vanity. You see, we don't truly worship Jesus because so often we make it about us. We make it about us. We all do this. We, we all come to church or listen to a, a, an album or listen to a pastor and we, we say or we think things like, I wish that pastor used a different translation of the Bible. That, that's not my favorite. I'm, I'm an NIV guy, you know? <laughs> or I, I don't really like that song. Why would they pick that song? That song's too fast or that song's too slow or they don't sing enough hymns or they sing too many hymns. Stuff like, I would have really interpreted that passage so differently if I was the one teaching that message. That guy isn't a very good singer, and it's kind of distracting me from being able to worship. I've never done communion like this. This is weird. I don't like it. Why is that girl putting her hands in the air while she sings? I don't like that. That distracts me. We make it about us. Our wants, our preferences, our selves. But you see, worship isn't about us. Last week, we talked about the very first time that the word worship is used in the Bible. It's from Genesis chapter 22. Now, if you weren't here or you need a little bit of a refresher, we talked about the story of Abraham and Isaac and how that story is primarily about the greatness of God. He is the great provider. Abraham thought it was about him. He thought that he needed to be a, a provider of the sacrifice. But no, God himself provides the sacrifice. He is the great provider. That day it was a ram. Someday it would be himself laying his life down on the cross for Abraham, for Isaac, for me, and for you. You see, Genesis 22 isn't a story about what Abraham does for God. It's a story about what God does for Abraham and ultimately for us. He is the great provider. He is all we need. It's about him. But sometimes we make it about us. You see, worship kind of falls into that same category because you see, worship isn't about what we do for God. Worship is a response to what God has done for us, to his majesty, to his greatness, to his power. That is true worship, but we miss it. We so often miss it. And I am convinced that we miss it because we make it about us. Like Carly Simon said, we are so vain. Now, I, I love that word vain. It's, it's actually one of my very favorite words in the entire English language. If you didn't know already, it actually has two distinct meanings. Okay, definition number one, excessively proud of or concerned about one's own appearance, qualities, achievements, etc. That's number one, definition number one. Definition number two is vain means without real significance, value or importance, baseless or worthless. Now here's why I love this word so much. Whenever we apply definition one to something, the result is almost always definition two. Do you track with that? When we apply definition one to something, the result is almost always definition two. When we are vain, the things we are doing end up being in vain. 
So let me explain what I mean. We make things all about ourselves and the thing becomes less significant. So we do this, think about it. We do it in our work. We make our job all about ourselves, what we can get from it, the money that we make instead of serving others or being about some greater good and our job loses significance. It's not, it's not enjoyable anymore. We don't enjoy going to it anymore because it's just become all about us. We do this in our relationships. If I make my marriage all about me, that relationship begins to lose value and eventually it's just lost completely. And it happens in our worship. To worship something is to ascribe ultimate value to it. To worship something is to say, that is worthy of every piece of attention and glory that it ever gets. It's to ascribe ultimate value to something. And worshiping anything besides Jesus is worthless. When we worship ourselves, our worship is worthless. It is vain, and it is in vain. You see what I'm saying? It's in vain. We make it about us, so it becomes vain. It becomes worthless, meaningless, insignificant. In fact, this is what Jesus continually tells the religious leaders, those called the Pharisees during his time on earth. Throughout the story of Jesus, we see the Pharisees being hypocrites. They pray loudly in the streets. They make sure everyone sees them when they teach or when they pray. They make sure everyone keeps all the Old Testament laws. They say they're the authority on all things. They act piously in public, but we see behind closed doors. And in private and in the quiet place, the Pharisees end up just being about themselves. They end up just being about their power, their money, their influence. One time, Jesus even calls them whitewashed tombs. That is to say, they might look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're just full of death. Matthew 15, the Pharisees are, are yelling at Jesus. They're confronting him and his disciples because they're not following some, some hand-washing rituals that they thought they were supposed to be following. And so Jesus comes to them and he calls them out again as hypocrites. And he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then listen to this last part. They worship me in vain. The Pharisees worshiped themselves more than they worshiped Jesus. And so their worship was worthless. It was vain and it was in vain. So how do we make sure that we aren't worshiping ourselves? How do we make sure that we are not making it all about us? How do we break free from the chains of vanity so that we can truly worship Jesus, the only one who is worthy? I'm going to answer that question by unpacking the definition of worship we introduced last week. Worship is what we love and what we live for. It's what we love and what we live for. It's what we prefer and what we pursue. It's our affections and our actions. Now to say it another way, for our purposes this morning, worship is about our heart and our hands. Worship is about our heart and our hands. Worship should engage all of us, our entire being. We see this clearly in the most famous worship passage in all of the Bible. That is Psalm 95. It says, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He holds in his hands the depths of the earth. 
and the mightiest mountains. The seas belong to him, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land too. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people he watches over, the flock under his care. If you would only listen to his voice today. Now notice that there are two sets of parallel imperatives in this passage. Okay, it's kind of broken into two halves, if you will. The first one begins in verse one. It says, come, let us sing, let us shout, let us give thanks, let us praise God. These are all directed at our hearts. It's about our passion. It's about our affections. But the second verse, or the second half, begins in verse six. It says, come, let us bow down, let us kneel, let us listen to God's voice. These are all directives based at our hands at our actions. They're, they're meant to move us to something. These are action words. When the psalmist calls us to worship, he calls us to do so with our heart and with our hands. It must be both. You see, if you go to a church service and, and you just kind of mouth all the words to the songs, you stand when they tell you to stand, you, you sit down when they tell you to sit down. Even maybe when the, the offering basket comes by, you throw a couple of dollars in. Maybe you, you even are on the greeting team. Maybe you're doing everything that they're telling you to do, but it's all rote. It's all contrived. It's all forced. You haven't truly worshipped. You see, you may be doing all the right things with your hands, but your heart's not in it. Now, the converse is true as well. If you go to church and you have your heart stirred to the point of this amazing emotional response, you're weeping as you're hearing the words, you're praising God, you're crying with passion, you're singing at the top of the lungs, but you walk out of that room and you resume living your life for yourself, you haven't truly worshiped. Your heart was moved, but your hands didn't follow. To truly worship Jesus is to give your whole self to him, your heart and your hands. But we don't usually worship this way. And I, I tell you why I think that. It's because it's easier to just do one. In fact, most of us are kind of predisposed to one side or the other. In fact, probably when I was giving those explanations or those examples, you were kind of thinking to yourself, that's more me. I'm kind of the one that just kind of does everything that I'm supposed to, but my heart's never really in it. Or you may be the one that is moved passionately, but you walk out and you kind of leave it all here at the church. For some of us, it's easier to follow along with our hands. It's more natural for us to make sure we're, we're, we're staying moral. We're doing all the right things, but we get uncomfortable about allowing our hearts to be stirred. We like to keep things at an arm's length. For others, it's easier to let our heart run free. Like we love to be emotionally moved by the things of God, but we really struggle to take that emotion and turn it into action. But one without the other means we're not giving our whole selves to Jesus. Heart without hands or hands without heart, it's not even half worship. It's not worship at all. It's in vain, and it is vain. It's only when we stop making worship out about us we truly surrender our whole selves, our hands and our heart to Jesus that we can truly worship him. So the question becomes, how do we do that? 
Because I know what many of you are thinking. I try to do the other one. I'm just kind of more naturally gifted at the first one. It just comes easier. It's, it's harder for me to stretch myself and to, to, to go farther than just my heart or just my hands. It's hard to do both. So the question is, how do we really do that? And I believe that the psalmist gives us the answer here in Psalm 95. You see, just as there are parallel directions for how to worship, there are parallel explanations for why we worship. Let me explain what I mean. See, in both sections, the author follows his come let us imperative with the word for. He gives this explanation afterwards. So in verse one, he starts with come let us sing, let us shout, let us give thanks, let us praise him. Come, basically come let us worship with our hearts. That's the how. Then he follows up the how with the why. Verse three, come worship the Lord with our hearts, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He holds in his hands the depth of the earth, the mightiest mountains. The seas belong to him, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land too. You're supposed to worship God with your heart because he is a great God, because he is king above all other gods. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of the whole world. We are absolutely in awe of him. Why do we worship him with our whole heart? Because of his power. Of course we should praise him. Of course we should turn our hearts toward him. Look at who he is. He is God. He is king. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is so high above anything that we could ever ask or imagine. His power captures our hearts. When we see God for who he really is, the majesty, the glory that surrounds him, our hearts have no choice but to be captured, to be enthralled with who he is. But remember, that's just half of it. That's just half of it. The psalmist begins the second half in the same way he began the first. Verse six says, come, let us bow down. Let us kneel. Let us listen to his voice. Basically, come, let us worship with our hands. Let us be moved to action. And then he gives the explanation in verse seven. For he is our God. We are the people he watches over the flock under his care. He isn't just God. He's our God. He isn't just king. He's our king. He's in a personal relationship with us. We are the people he watches over. Like a sheep with her shepherd, we are the flock under his care. Why do we worship God with our hands? It's because of his posture. It's because of the way he comes to us. Yes, he is, he is so far above us with so much power. He is creator. He is king. He is God. He is sustainer. But his posture is that of a shepherd kneeling next to his sheep. He isn't just God. He's our God. Did you know the Bible says that Abraham, our story, our main character from our story from last week, was called a friend of God? The God that Abraham saw change the entire course of human history. The God that Abraham, even though he was 100 and his wife was 90, the God that he saw give him children that had grandchildren and great grandchildren and eventually became this huge nation. The God that Abraham saw, who was creator and sustainer and king of all things. He was not only the most powerful being in the universe, he was his friend. He was his friend. 
This was true for Abraham, it was true for the psalmist, but it's even more true for us. Why? Don't miss this, okay? It's even more true for us because God has now postured himself not only as our friend, but as our savior. In the person of Jesus Christ, God left heaven. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then he died the death that we deserved on the cross. Philippians 2 says it like this. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's not just our friend, he's our savior, because you know what? It didn't just stop there with his death on the cross. No, Jesus overcame death with life by rising from the dead, and now he freely offers that life, his life, through the Holy Spirit, to anyone who places their faith in him. Think about that posture, my friends. Think about the way that the God of the universe humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he could be so much more than our friends, so that he could be our savior. To Abraham and to the psalmist, he was shepherd. To us, he's a savior. He isn't just next to us as our friend. No, by his Holy Spirit, he is within us as our life. This Psalm 95 says is why we worship God with our hands. Because he isn't just the God, he's our God. He doesn't just live in the heavenly places high above all things. No, he dwells within our hearts. And through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we are now empowered to be the hands and feet of Jesus. He, he enables our hands to move. He enables our hands to worship him. He captures our heart with his greatness and his glory, but he moves our hands with his love. To put it simply, God's power captures our hearts, but his posture enables our hands. God's power captures our hearts, but his posture enables our hands. It's about who God is and what he has done for us. God didn't come halfway. You know, he's not the, he's not the creator king that just made everything and then sat back on his throne and, and watched it all unfurl. He also isn't just the shepherd who takes care of the sheep when they're hurting and when they're sick. He didn't just create life and step back. He created life and then he saw our brokenness and so he put his life in us. He's the God, but he is our God. For the rest of our time together this morning, I want you to consider this. I want you to, to dwell on this, that he didn't come halfway, and neither should we. That true worship requires our heart and our hands. Anything else, 
Anything less is vain. And anything less is in vain. If we come halfway, we come halfway because we're making it about us. He didn't do that. He came all the way. He's not just the king, he's our king. He's not just the creator. He's our friend. So as we sing and as we take communion together and as we continue worshiping over these next few minutes, we want to create spaces for you to worship God truly and fully with your heart and with your hands. Let me pray and then I'm going to explain what that really looks like for us. Lord God, thank you for the truth from your word this morning. Thank you that you didn't come halfway. Thank you that you are not just the God, but you are our God. Thank you for the way that you love us, for the way that you care for us, for the way that you lead us and lay down your life for us and raise it up again to empower us to worship you fully in spirit and in truth with our heart and with our hands. God, what an incredible posture that you have taken toward us. I pray, as Matt said earlier, that we would now consider our posture towards you, the posture of our hands, the posture of our hearts. Help us worship you fully and truly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.